Hey folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Henry McMillan. And then my mom called me as I was walking into the library and she was like, Henry, are you having rough sex? Don't have rough sex. <laughs> that and more. But before that, there is no experience in this world quite like being at a Risk live stream show. And the next one is September 26th. That's a Saturday. Saturday, September 26th at 10 p.m. Eastern Time at 7 p.m. Pacific. We're going to have another one of these fabulous Risk live streams. Now, we're doing fewer of these now, so you have to make sure to get a ticket. There's also a limited amount of tickets available. So you have to go to risk-show.com slash tour to get your tickets ASAP. That is Saturday, September 26th at 10 p.m. Eastern. See you there. Also, I want to remind you that there are so many amazing opportunities, educational opportunities that we offer at thestorystudio.org. There are live online group classes. There are on-demand video courses that you can take in your own time at your own pace. There's one-on-one -on -one storytelling lessons with our instructors. There's webinars and masterclasses, these one-offs that have become so popular lately. The next one is with me, October 27th. It's storytelling for performance, where I will talk about using pitch and pacing and volume and speed and tapping into certain nuances of your personality, exercises and techniques for overcoming stage fright, staying in the moment, becoming more comfortable with your voice, finding a balance between memorizing and improvising, building rapport with an audience. It's going to be a blast. That's October 27th with me. It's 6 p.m. Eastern, but there's so many other webinars and masterclasses coming up, so you got to check it all out at thestorystudio.org. And don't forget, we also do corporate workshops. We've worked with clients like Google, Pfizer, Citibank, American Express, so many more, just extraordinary experiences helping career-minded people communicate more effectively in an emotional and human and narrative way in order to persuade or get everyone on the same page. Those workshops are incredible for team building, We've had clients tell us that after a workshop with us, they had <laughs> multi-million dollar deals go through because their communication skills were so improved. So that is all at the Story Studio. Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. 
Get IXL now, and listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program, available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. .org. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Disclosure and Eco Roosevelt behind me now. Literally moments just before clicking the record button for starting the hosting of this episode, I got a little notification on my phone that Ruth Bader Ginsburg has passed away right before... I settled down to do the hosting of this episode. Now, I'm not going to comment on it. I mean, I'm not going to, you know, I'm at that stage where I can't process this right now. You know, my, uh, takes me a while to process shocks like that. So I'm not going to go into any commentary about it except to say that you know you know where i stand that that i i really really do feel that we are in a, a situation where good people good people people of conscience people who use their critical thinking skills and stay well informed and care about equality and justice good people we have got to be doing everything we can to turn this situation around she herself said that real change enduring change happens one step at a time and she said fight for the things that you care about but do it in a way that will lead others to join you 
in history, truly, profoundly dark and brutal times are often followed by periods of reformation. And this show is an example of how in people's lives, you know, in the microcosm of individual lives, man, people do get through brutal trauma and find ways to reform. So, you know, <laughs> let's just be doing everything we possibly can as an engaged citizenry to work toward a day when we will somehow turn this thing around. Now, this is indeed an extraordinary episode. Just, you know, it's a, it's just another week on risk with three phenomenal stories. We're going to have some laughter. We're going to have some, oh my gosh, I can't believe this is happening. And this person is being so excruciatingly honest. And, and we're going to have a, a story that is really inspirational and gives a lot of hope about the possibility of growth. So we're here, folks. We're here to do what we do at risk. So let's dig in, okay? In a little bit, we're going to hear from Laura Ford, who was a Risk listener, who heard us calling for stories and pitched us, I'll tell you, so many remarkable things happen when you, the Risk listeners, Laura Ford is an example of someone who, like, storytelling is not her thing. You're, you're going to be amazed that this is just the first time her, she was doing something like this. So I'm going to make a little video this week where I give uh, some tips and techniques for, you know, how to pitch us a story, especially the little anecdotes, the little three to four minute long anecdotes that people have been sending in. People seem to need a little bit more inspiration or guidance or whatever. And so uh, look for that. I'll be posting that on all our socials. You know where to find us at Risk Show on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. And you can check out the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group on Facebook, too. But before Laura, we're going to hear from Henry McMillan. This is a story that was recorded in Los Angeles at our live show, I don't know how many years ago now. This one is one from the vaults. You can find Henry on Instagram, at Henry McMillan, and here he is now with a story we call... Snip, snip. Hi, everyone. That's so nice. <laughs> when I was 20 years old, I had to get circumcised because my girlfriend at the time pulled down too hard on my penis while giving me a blowjob. Now, this is not a story about my circumcision alone. It's about what it inspired. 
I was a sophomore at Occidental College on the east side of Los Angeles, and I met Beth. Uh, she was a transfer student. She was really pretty and really green, doughy eyes, and she was super sweet. And we met at a dorm room party, and we were super fucked up, and we started making out in front of everybody. And that sort of started the trajectory of our relationship, which was um, mostly on weekends, mostly drunk. And at the time, I was relatively sexually inexperienced. I had had sex with a few different girls, but we'd used condoms, and so my penis was kind of protected, if you will. when it actually happened and she pulled down too hard on it, um, I knew something was wrong, but I was like, I'm into this. And (laughs) it wasn't until the next day that I was like, something's really wrong because my foreskin was pulled back too far. So the head of my penis was exposed and I knew that my foreskin should go over it once it's flaccid, but it wasn't. So I decided to go to the ER. And at the ER, they gave me some anti-inflammatory pills and sort of sent me on my way. And they're like, oh, the head of the penis will go down. And it didn't go down. Uh, Each day, I would go down the hallway to see my best friend, Phil, and I'd be like, does it look worse? (laughs) And it did. The head of my penis began to swell up so much, and it was sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy because the foreskin was cinching around the head of the penis, so the more my penis swelled, the more it cinched, and vice versa. So I was like, I think it's getting bad, and he was like, it looks like a photo that they should use in like you know med school. Like, <laughs> and I decided to look up a actual dick doctor, which is a urologist. And <laughs> And I found one nearby, and his name was Dr. Hyman. I kid you not. You cannot write that shit. So I went to Dr. Hyman, and you know it's bad when the doctor looks at your penis and goes, Oh my God. He goes, Lie back. Oh, first of all, I should mention that I called my father after the ER, and I was like, Dad, I gotta go to the ER because my penis is hurt. And. That was fine. Then my mom called me as I was walking into the library and she was like, Henry, are you having rough sex? Don't have rough sex. (laughs) And I about like threw my cell phone into a trash can. It was like so horrifying. (laughs) Cutting back to the doctor's office, he goes, lie back. I go, okay. And then he starts asking me questions like he's trying to distract me. He's like, where are you from? I'm like, Oregon. And he starts to squeeze the fluid out of the head of my penis back into the shaft. And he's screaming at me, do you have a roommate? I'm like, yes, where's he from? Florida! (laughs) He then pulls the foreskin over the head of my penis. And he says, if you had not come in, you may have lost the feeling in the head of your penis. I'm really glad you came in. And I was overwhelmed, as you could imagine. I walked out of the, first of all, he also said, you cannot have any sex of any kind until you get circumcised. Basically what I think happened, all my friends tried to blame Beth on my injured penis, but in reality, I think that I learned to jerk off as a kid by pulling up instead of down, so it never really learned its full range of motion. Um, So I think that's sort of what the main issue was. At any rate, he was like, no more sex until you get this done. And there was about a month left of school. So I was like, okay, I'll go home when school's over and get it done. I got into my car and I, and I was so overwhelmed with the whole experience that I just started crying because it was intense. And I was dealing with some other things as well. When I got back to campus, 
I sat Beth down and I said, so this is what happened and you know, uh, we can't have any more sex and I think we need to break up because I think I might also be into dudes. <laughs> she was naturally very devastated and she said, well, I thought you might be gay, but then we had sex, so I just thought you weren't and, and I was like, yeah, I know, it's confusing. And um, <laughs> even more so for me. Um, because the thing was is I really did like her and I had feelings for her and I really did enjoy sexual interaction with her and I, I was all about it, you know? Um, and I really liked how much she liked me. So we broke up and we sort of stopped talking for a little bit. I went home, I got the surgery done and it was rather uneventful. The main event was that it took two months to heal and I had stitches around my penis for two months. So about a couple weeks in, you know, I am freaking out because I'm getting boners at night and it's pressing against the stitches. I know it is very graphic, so. <laughs> Sorry. And so I'd have to come up with images in my mind to get rid of the boners, right? So like, I'd be like, okay, like a pile of dead puppies in a parking lot. <laughs> but then the puppy's fur would turn into like fur by a fire and then I'm fucking by a fire. And I couldn't get it out of my head. But about two weeks in, I'm like, I've got to jerk off. I am gonna lose my mind. By this point, I went back to college, so I was living off campus for the summer. I was living with a couple of buddies of mine, and I was like, maybe if I just slightly, lightly jerk my dick off, then like, you know, I won't, I won't disrupt anything. But my stitches still bled, and my roommates were rather unsympathetic at the time because I was like, you guys, my dick bled, and they were like, Jarg, the Dread Pirate Scar Dick, and they had all these <laughs> nicknames for me. But I think it was important to make light of my situation as it was very intense. When my penis finally healed, I was at a party, you know, a house party over the summer there and Beth was there and I got drunk and she was drunk and like old times we started to make out. I said, hey, uh, my dick's healed, can I try it out? And, <laughs> and she said, only if we get back together. So I was like, okay. <laughs> So we fucked for like three weeks and I was like, this is great, I love my new dick. <laughs> and then I said, I'm sorry, I think I'm still gotta try this yearning I have for men that I still have not done yet. So I'm sorry, I'm breaking up with you for the second time. And she was so livid and so upset and she told me, if you ever try to touch me again, I will punch you in the face. And then she slept with my roommate while I was asleep in my bed. I know. But I was like, eh, kind of fair, and you know. <laughs> so, the craziest part about this is actually to come, because throughout the rest of <laughs> throughout the rest of college, we we sort of had a torrid, you know, friendship. We tried to be friends, we couldn't. And, you know, I think she really was in love with me, and I felt so bad. You know, to this day, it's one of the worst things I ever did to anyone. Is get back together with them just for my own benefit to try out my new penis and yada yada. So it was, it came as a shock six years later to find out that she's invited me to her wedding. And I had not talked to her since college, like six years have gone by and I'm like, I can't go to that wedding, that's crazy. So I don't go. But then she comes to LA with her new husband a few weeks later and she contacts me again and she says, do you wanna get drinks? I'd love to get drinks. And I said, okay. 
So I go out with her and her husband, and it's really good to see her. She looks great. She looks like exactly the same, and her husband seems perfectly nice. And um, you know, I got a chance to tell her. I was like, you know, I really did like you, and and I wasn't using you, and and I really felt terribly about how things went. And her husband said to me, you know, you really paved the way for me in a lot of ways. And I was like, oh, what do you mean? <laughs> and. He said, when we first got together, Beth kept asking me, are you sure you're not gay? Are you sure you're not gay? <laughs> and for years, he had to be like, no, I'm not gay. But then finally, he sat her down and he apparently said, actually, I'm bisexual and I've hooked up with a bunch of guys before I met you, three years into their relationship. So we're having margaritas and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> I look at her and I'm like, I am so, so sorry that this happened to you again. <laughs> and apparently, you know, they had a progressive relationship and they sort of like, you know, maybe hook up with other people and she's tried hooking up with girls and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. You guys are so progressive and you got married and you worked it out. And then I had this thought, I was like, oh my God, am I about to have a threesome? <laughs> It would be the ultimate closure, really. <laughs> so I'm kind of into it because I'm like, fuck it, she looks good still, and like, he's bi and that's hot or whatever. <laughs> and, and so I was like, can you guys give me a ride home? And I'm like, maybe I'm gonna work this out somehow. We go out to the street and their rental car has been towed because they parked it in the valet. And I was like, well, okay then, that's that. Uh, it's good to see you. I'm so proud of you guys and onward and upward. And it did not happen, unfortunately. I'm sorry I couldn't give you guys that tidbit. <laughs> In hindsight, I do believe that I would have found my way to being a comfortable gay man sooner or later. But I really do have Beth to thank for expediting the process. And I love my new dick. <laughs> thank you. My girlfriend pulled down too hard on my penis while giving me a blowjob. I was relatively sexually inexperienced and she pulled down too hard on it. I'm into this. The head of my penis began to swell up. The foreskin was cinching around the head of the penis. So the more my penis swelled, the more my penis cinched. And so the more my penis swelled, the more my penis cinched. And so the more it swelled, the more it cinched. And the more it swelled, the more it cinched. And the more it swelled. Does it look worse? I grab Carter, my husband's hand, as we walk into Bertha's office. I look at him and I say, oh my God, I feel like we're going in for an ultrasound because we are going in to meet with Bertha, who is Manny and Jay's social worker. They are two brothers, ages eight and 10, who we are hoping to adopt from foster care. And this is our matching meeting. This is when we learn about their personal history, their medical history, their schooling, and we get to decide if they're the boys for us. And 
we sit through this matching meeting and there are no red flags for us. These two boys really love performing arts. They're active and both Carter and I work in the performing arts field and their interests really align with us and we're just thrilled. So on the way home, I'm I'm bouncing in my car seat. I'm like, oh my gosh, Carter, we are going to be parents and we've wanted this for so long. It's going to be in about two months when they finally get to move in for real. But in the meantime, we're going to have almost like a little dating period. So we're going to get together a couple nights a week and then they'll have their first overnight and then they'll sleep over for a longer period of time until slowly they just permanently move in. So after a few weeks, we come to the first sleepover and whew, <laughs> it is wild. It is noisy in our house. We're not used to two preteen boys with us, but it is chaotic. It is loud. And Carter and I look at each other and we're just smiling because this is exactly what we wanted. Before they go to bed, we decide to go and play a board game in our finished basement. And um, everyone's having a great time and we finish the game and Carter goes, all right, time for bed, everyone. And Jay, the youngest, jumps up and goes, no, I don't want to go to bed and runs up the stairs. And we hear click and Manny, Carter and I look at each other and we go, did he just lock the door? <laughs> and we all burst out laughing. The social workers told us, prepare for the unexpected. And whew, <laughs> yeah, that was unexpected. <laughs> Luckily, Carter had his house keys with him. So he was able to go out through the basement door and unlock the front door. And we found Jay sitting sheepishly on his bed, but everything was fine. <laughs> The next time they came over, it was for a two-night sleepover, and they brought their bicycles. But I was surprised that they didn't bring their helmets, and they were both like, no, we never have helmets. We don't use our helmets when we ride at our foster mom's house, so it's not a big deal. I'm like, no, no, you're going to ride with helmets. We'll go to the store before you can ride on your bikes. So we went to Target. Manny bought this shiny blue helmet, and Jay bought one of those helmets with those like spiky fake mohawks on it. And they were so excited. So we got back from Target and I'm exhausted <laughs> because I'm not used to this. And Carter goes, why don't you take a nap and I'll take the boys out for a bike ride. I wake up suddenly from my nap because someone's banging on my front door. What? What's happening? I'm hot and sticky. I go to my front door and there's this woman I don't know. Hurry, hurry, you have to help. You have to come. There's been an accident. What? What accident? Your son, your son's been in an accident. Oh my gosh. What? Where, where's Carter? What's happening? Get in your car and follow me. I'm just down the street. Oh my God. So I, I grab my keys. I get in my car. And when I turn down her street, all I see is flashing lights. And, and there's so many flashing lights. I, I pull over and a blur just zooms into my car and I hear, go, 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 go. And I turn around and it's Manny. 
Manny, what happened? What's going on? Go, go, go! Manny, hold on. I have to I have to go see what's happening. And I get out of my car and I see a stretcher and I, I run over and I see Carter and I'm like, Carter, what happened? And it's Jay. Jay's on the stretcher. And he looks at me and he goes, we were riding our bikes and we went down this big hill and Jay couldn't stop and he stopped really suddenly and then he flipped over the handlebars and I couldn't stop him and it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And they're, they're going to take him to the hospital and so all of a sudden before I could stop them, the ambulance doors close and they drive off and I am left standing on the street alone. So I go back to my car and I say, okay, okay, Manny, we, we're going to follow him to the hospital. And he's like, no, I don't, I don't want to go to the hospital. I say, okay, we're, we have to go to the hospital. So we get to the hospital with just enough time for Carter to meet us out in the lobby and for him to tell us, okay, we're being airlifted to Boston. What? Yep, we're being airlifted to Boston and I'll call you later. He kisses me on the cheek and he leaves. And once again, I'm left alone and I look at Manny who is crying and still trying to hide under a blanket that he grabbed from the car. And I say, okay, okay, Manny, okay, everything's going to be okay. Okay, come on, let's, let's go take a break. And I realize, okay, Carter has Jay and I have his... His brother, I have Manny, and he's my responsibility, and I have to put my energy into him right now. So we go to Dunkin' Donuts, and we get a donut, and I pull up some funny videos on YouTube because I just want to make him feel okay. And Manny looks at me, and he says, can we can we take a selfie? I say, okay, okay. So we take a selfie and I look at it and I look horrible. <laughs> I look like I'm fighting back tears and Manny is smiling. He just has this big, beautiful smile on his face. And he looks at me and he goes, Laura, that's our first selfie together. And um, we go home and I get a call from Carter who tells me that Jay's injuries are, are scary, but they're not life-threatening, thank God. He has road rash all over his body and he's broken his teeth, his new teeth that just grew in. His nose is broken, his kneecap might be broken, and the doctors put him in an induced coma. They told Carter that if he wasn't wearing the helmet that we bought him, he would have died. So, um, I call Carter's mom, who is more than happy to come over, and so she meets Manny for the first time. Carter and I discuss it, and I go to the hospital that night, and I spend the night. Jay spends about a week at the hospital, and Carter and I take turns spending the night there, and... Manny has to go back to his foster mom's, but we stay in touch and we call him every night to make sure he's okay. And Carter and I take turns sleeping at the hospital, but Jay is so sad. You know, he's just this tiny little boy laying on this hospital bed and he's not smiling and he's not talking. And one night I look at him and I say, Jay, is it okay if I lay in the bed with you and do you want to cuddle and he nods his head yes and I cuddle in bed and we watch a movie together and that night he calls me mommy 
and it's the first time he calls me mommy. After a few days, we have a number of conversations with Bertha, the social worker, and he's doing really well. And so the hospital decides he can be released. And Bertha decides that both him and Manny can be released into our care so we can officially become their foster parents. It's a lot faster than we originally anticipated, but we're so happy. And so on my birthday, about a week after the accident, Manny and Jay are in our care. So Jay's released from the hospital and Manny's home and it's wonderful. It's chaotic and noisy and we have pizza and the boys are writing birthday cards for me and there's cake everywhere. And Carter and I our eyes meet across the table and we smile because we know that now everything is going to be okay. The next morning is the boys' last day of school. So Carter takes them both to school and I get ready to start my day. So I go into the bathroom and I notice that the shower curtain is all wet but not the inside of the shower curtain, like the outside. And then I noticed that the wall opposite the toilet is all wet. And I noticed that there are puddles around the toilet. So I I touch it and I bring my fingers to my nose and it's urine. So I I clean it up and um, I wait for Carter to get home. And we talk about it and I'm like, there's urine all over the bathroom. And we decide, you know, maybe it's Jay. He, he's been limping since the accident. So maybe he just like lost his balance and was really embarrassed to say anything. So I leave a message for Bertha just to give her a heads up. You know, I know we're supposed to keep in touch with the social worker. And I'm surprised when we get a message saying that she's on vacation, I thought that she would have told us this, but it's okay. So I leave her a message and we go about our day. Later, Carter brings the boys home and I go into the bathroom and squish. There's more urine on the floor. So I take out some paper towels and some cleaning supplies. And since the boys are eight and 10, I decide like they can have the responsibility to clean up after themselves. So I go out and I tell them, not try not to make a big deal about it, but just say, hey, you know, I noticed that there was a little bit of spill and if you miss the toilet, it's not a big deal. Just please clean up after yourself. You know, I left some paper towels out there and it's not a big deal. Okay. Later that night, go in the bathroom, squish. I'm really starting to get grossed out. You know, I... I just think it's pretty gross to start stepping in someone else's urine all the time. So I decide, okay, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna wear flip flops into the bathroom. Good solution. It'll be fine. So the next day, I have to go out to the store to buy Jay some clothes because when he was at the hospital, they cut off his clothes and he really didn't have any. Manny was supposed to bring 
all of his clothes from the foster home, but he only brought his own, which was weird, but that's okay. So I go to the store and I just pick up lots of things. I pick up stuff for Manny, I pick up stuff for Jay, and I buy everything that I think they like. So I know Manny likes sports teams, so I buy stuff with all the logos and all sorts of things. And I come home and I'm showing the boys all their stuff. And at first they're both really excited. And then Manny's face changes and his eyes just get darker and darker and I don't know what's going on and he just starts getting mad. I don't like this. I don't like that. This is ugly. I hate this. I would never wear that. And then he starts throwing things and saying, hey, Manny, it's okay. If you don't like it, we'll go to the store together later. We'll return this. You can pick out stuff you like. No, I don't want to do that. And nothing is good enough. But I know from the training, this stuff can happen. They've just been through a lot. You know, there's a whole lot of things going on. But then he throws his body on the floor and starts kicking and screaming like he's a toddler. And he is a five foot two, 10 year old boy who's losing control of his body and screaming. And, and I start getting scared because he's the same height as me and he is stronger than me probably. And I can't stop this. So I back off and tell him, please calm down. And if you need to take some time and he cuts me off and he runs into his bedroom and he slams the door. And that night, I noticed there's a lot of urine in the bathroom. And so I decide to move my toothbrush and my towel and my shampoo bottle and conditioner bottle out of the bathroom because I'm starting to get really a little nervous around this situation. I leave another message for Bertha because I'm really not sure what to do right now. Carter and I talk about it and he's like, okay, it's fine. They're going to call us back and then we'll hear more. You know, they'll give us some good advice. The next day we think, you know, we just need to have some fun with everything that happened to the accident. You know, they moved in so much faster than we thought they should go out to the movies. So Carter's like, I'm going to take him out to the movies. You've really taken on a lot of this burden. So why don't you relax? And I'll take him out. You can have the house to yourself. I'm like, oh, thank you so much, Carter. You're such a blessing. So they go out to the movies. And I'm like, I'm just going to read a book. I'm going to lay outside. I'm going to read my book. And first I go use the bathroom. Squish. And it's all over. And my bathroom floor, my only bathroom in this house, has linoleum tiles. So it's not a full sheet of linoleum. It's these little pieces. And when I step on the floor, urine pops up in between all these little pieces. So there is so much urine that it has seeped into the floor. And I am so disgusted. And I just close the bathroom door and I go outside and I'm trying to read. And I just, I can't concentrate because I'm just grossed out. I'm upset. I'm mad. Like, where is Bertha? Why isn't she calling me back? I don't understand. We didn't see any of this and his history. And I don't know if we're doing something wrong. I'm really trying to give him the same amount of attention we're giving Jay. I know this is a highly stressful situation, but I don't know what to do. 
And I decide, like, I'm not going to be able to relax until I go clean that bathroom. So I go into the bathroom. I have my big jug of bleach. I have my water. I'm on my hands and knees, and I'm scrubbing. I move the cat litter out of the way, and there's just urine under the cat litter. And I'm like, did he pick it up and pee under the cat litter? I don't know. And then I hear the door open. And I think, oh, God, they're already home. And bing, 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 three little faces pop in the doorway. And my face is red. And I'm sweating. And I stink. And I'm like, I, hi, guys. I just, I just need a few minutes. So I, I close the door. And this feeling of rage just starts bubbling up in my chest and I and I just I just scream I just scream and I scream and I start crying because I'm so frustrated I just don't know why this is happening and why did the accident happen and why is there urine all over the place and why I've tried the best I can and none of this has ever happened before apparently but why is it happening now and I'm so upset so I just scream it all out and nothing I don't say any words but it's just this guttural scream and I immediately feel totally embarrassed because everyone in the house heard me so I finish cleaning and walk out of the bathroom and my husband's there and I say that that was not that was not good and he goes no that, that wasn't a good moment but it's okay and we have dinner that evening and boys go to bed and I'm sitting on the couch later and trying to relax and and Manny comes out of his bedroom and he goes into the bathroom and then comes out and makes direct eye contact with me and he walks past Carter and looking at me and he says, Laura, in this really calm voice, goes, there's urine all over the bathroom floor. And I know there wasn't urine on the bathroom floor because I had just cleaned it up. And I say, okay, Manny, I think you need to clean it up. And he goes, no. And he turns around and walks away. And my heart is beating faster than it has. And I look at Carter and I start shaking. And I say, he's doing this on purpose. Carter, I'm really scared of him. And I jump up out of the couch and I run into the bedroom and I grab my suitcase and I say I, I can't stay here anymore Carter and he's like shh Laura, Laura and I'm like I don't care if you can hear me I can't stay here anymore I am scared of him he's doing this on purpose and he knows it's hurting me and he's doing this on purpose and I start throwing my clothes into my bag and I'm like I just I have to get out of here I don't feel safe in here I don't feel safe in my own home I can't stay here anymore more. And he's like, Laura, Laura, we'll get through this together. We'll just stay here one more night. We're going to talk to Bertha in the morning. I'm like, Bertha is not calling us back. We are alone in this. And he goes, it's okay. We're going to force them to call us and we'll call her supervisor. And I'm like, no, I'm leaving. I'm getting out of here. I can't stay here. He's like, Laura, this is our home. This is our home. We 
live here. This is our home and we can lock the door. It's okay. We'll get this. And so I put the bag away and I say, okay, but if, if we can't figure something out, I'm, I'm not, I'm not spending another night here. Tonight's the last night I'm spending in here at night because I don't know what he's going to do to me. He's out to get me. I don't know what else he's going to do to me. Okay. Okay. So Carter locks the bedroom door and, and somehow I fall asleep that night. I get out of bed at five in the morning and I don't want to be in the house, so I I go out to the deck and I close the sliding glass door behind me and I start crying because it's so overwhelming and I'm still really scared. And I hear this little tap, tap, tap on the glass sliding door and I, I turn around and it's Jay and he's in his pajamas and his hair's all messed up because he was sleeping and he waves at me and he says, hi mommy. And I signal to him, I'll be right there. And I try to compose myself because I don't want him to see me cry. Later that morning, I get a call from Bertha, finally, and she's all, Hey, got back from vacation. I heard your messages. And I say, Bertha, I, I really need you to come over because we really need to talk. Um, there's a lot of serious things happening right now. She tries to brush me off, and I, No, really, you need to come over. Okay, so why don't you send the boys to the Boys and Girls Club? They're used to going there when they're with their foster mom. And then uh, we can chat. Okay. So Carter packs him a lunch and he is going to bring them to the Boys and Girls Club. So I give Jay a big hug goodbye. And I get the courage to give Manny a hug goodbye. And um, off they go. So while I'm waiting for Carter to come back and for Bertha to come over, I get a phone call from Carter's mom. She's like, hey, Laura, you know, this thing happened when I was watching Manny the other day. And I kind of debated if I should tell you and I'm like please please Georgia what what happened please tell me well I was in the kitchen with Manny and um you know your your cute cat he walked into the room and Manny was making direct eye contact with me and and he kicked your cat and um my heart stops because because I love this cat because he loves people and he is just this loving beacon of joy and the thought that I could have brought someone into my house that would hurt him breaks my heart and it makes me feel terrible I thank Georgia for telling me and I hang up the phone and there's a knock on the door, and it's Bertha. And she's like, hey, how are you? And I'm like, 
or that I am not okay. We really need to talk. I'm like, okay, well, let's sit at the dining room table. And and she gives me this stupid line of expect the unexpected and, you know, go back to your training. I'm like, no, no, there are some serious things happening. And I tell her about the urine and I tell her about the tantrums and about him kicking my cat and Carter and I made a list of non-negotiables if they brought up during the matching meeting. And the number one was animal abuse, followed by major property destruction. And the last one was if there was any history of this child abusing people, either physically or emotionally. And I really think Manny is hitting all three right now. And she gets a little serious and she goes, well, you know, I went through his files and I did find some history that we may not have disclosed to you. What? Well, you know, it turns out in his last foster home, he did um, pee in the heating vents a few times. What? Yeah, he he would get mad, and then he would go, and he would just urinate in the heating docks and in the vents, and... What? Why wouldn't you tell us this? Well, you know, sometimes things get left out. No, 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 no. This is why we have matching meetings. You're just supposed to disclose everything. Well, you know, this got left out. Then, Or that I can't do this anymore. He is scaring me. He is scaring me, and I, I'm scared to be in my own house. Like, I can't. I don't know what he's going to do. I don't know what he's capable of. I am not the right person for him. I can't help him. And her tone changes. Well, then there's two options. You can learn how to take care of him, or you can dissolve the adoption. Okay, I think, I think I need to dissolve the adoption. Okay, well then we'll pick up the boys from the Boys and Girls Club today. And no, 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 no. Um, we, we are, we're doing great with Jay. You know, we have bonded and he's such a love and everything's going good. No, no, they're a package deal. We don't separate brothers. No, but, no, but we really, everything's so great with him. And, and every, no. And then Carter comes home and I look at him and I said, they, they won't, they won't separate the boys. And, and if we can't take Manny, then we can't take Jay. And Carter knows that I will not be able to spend one more night in that home with Manny. And he knows what they have to do. So they pack up some of the boys' things and tell us, okay, we're going to pick them up from the Boys and Girls Club and you won't have to see them again. And they leave. Once they leave, the house is empty. And Carter is so sad. And I know that he is mourning. And he's mourning the loss. But I'm angry. I'm angry about the system that they failed us and they failed the boys because they weren't honest. And then later when we have friends and family tell us, well, at least you know now. No, 
no, this should never have happened. They should have told us up front and we wouldn't have matched with them and we would have matched with someone else that's a better fit and would have been better for them and it would have been better for us. For me, this process of healing has been like a pendulum. I swing back and forth from fear and anger to sadness and nothing. And some days I'm okay. Some days it's right on the surface and others it's faded in the back. Eventually that pendulum has started to slow down. But I don't think it'll ever stop. I just learned to live with the slight sway of the grief. Folks, that story you just heard got a lot of people talking. Here at risk, we heard from other people who, like Laura, were still grieving about having attempted what also became disrupted adoptions. We also heard from people who were adopted when they were young. We heard from some social workers with various feelings about that story. And we heard from plenty of folks who just belonged to families where one or two of the children had behavioral issues. And there were some very passionate conversations online, especially over at the Risk Podcast Fans discussion group on Facebook. We always encourage that if people are commenting online about what a storyteller shared on Risk, to remember that the storyteller might see your comment. The storyteller may very well read what you said about them. And so it's best to communicate online with the same amount of consideration that you would bring to a face-to-face conversation with a storyteller. Now, Laura Ford saw what people were saying over on Facebook, and she was feeling feelings. So we all thought that it could be helpful and useful for everybody if Cindy Freeman, who was Laura's story coach on this story, and me and Laura all had a conversation about the story and about the reactions people were having to it. So instead of making the story itself longer, we have this follow-up to it. What you're about to hear are just snippets, just little excerpts from that conversation between me, Cindy, and Laura, but I hope it helps to fill in some of the gaps of what people were unclear with or helps people to have more understanding of what they were understandably uncomfortable with from the story. So here it is, excerpts from a conversation about Laura Ford's story, Heartbreak.
Why did you decide you wanted to share this story with Risk? Where were you at in the early stages of it all? One of my, the ways I started healing, I really turned to storytelling. We need to hear when people are the bad guy, even when they don't mean to be. We need to hear people make horrible mistakes, horrible accidents, take on too much. We all hurt people, even when we don't intend to hurt people. I also couldn't find a lot of stories about the process of adoption and when it goes wrong. A lot of people don't talk about it because it's such a horrible thing. But I thought, I'm not the only person out there who has gone through this. And if I'm searching for other people's stories, maybe other people are too. So um, maybe I can help someone else if they hear my story. It's hard sharing a story when you're like, I am 100% the bad guy. You know, whatever feelings people have listening to this story and whatever feelings they have about me, I guarantee I have thought those things about myself probably times two, times three. <laughs> yeah. 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 Mm-hmm. There are so many children in foster care that need homes. These social workers are under so much pressure. There's not enough social workers. Do you know anything about how the boys are doing now? So we don't know anything about how they're doing. Um, The last time I saw them was when we hugged them goodbye before they went to the Boys and Girls Club. I have no idea what they were told. It's horrible. It's a horrible thing to live with. Um, I hope that they were adopted. I hope that they are together. I know at the end of the story, I say that I was making the deals, you know, the, the deals with God, as people say, and, you know, was begging for to keep the younger brother, you know, that's just those things that you say in those passionate moments and ultimately of course I don't want to separate brothers oh gosh I hope they're together I I hope that they have a family that could help Manny with his trauma and the behaviors that resulted from the trauma yeah we have their hand-drawn cards on our refrigerator it's funny it's something that carter and i have never talked about we just put them up on the fridge and um they're there and i i love that they're there because because they're a part of my life for a short time they were our sons or they were going to be our sons so i mean they're forever in my heart so it when i see it I think about them fondly and I just want the best for them. So I think it's important. I think it's important to keep those things. When someone leaves your life, you don't take down their photo. (laughs) You keep their photo up because you love them and you care about them and, and we care about them. So I keep that up. So Carter, 
he's my rock. He's really the most wonderful person I know. And um, we're together in this from the very start. But I know that it's been a horrible struggle for him as well. I didn't want to speak for him in this story. You know, he maybe someday should tell his own version of these events. Um, but, you know, he he's the one that hopped in the ambulance with Jay. He had to go in the helicopter when they took him to Boston. He was there when they put him in a coma and when the doctors told him that he would have died without a helmet. It was very difficult to try to decide what to include and what not to include. Maybe I could have gone into more details about other things that were happening in the house, other behaviors that we saw from Manny. We talked to so many people, all the resources we reached out to, um, a network of like a support group and of experienced adopted parents. And they were saying like, talk to them about it. And some people were saying, don't talk to them about it. And some people were saying, we'll reward them if there isn't any urine on the floor. Don't reward them at all. Make them clean it up. Don't make them clear it up. It was so confusing. <laughs> the amount of just like, do this, do this, try that, try that. And I think um, there was another incident with our cat that we decided to cut just for length of time. I didn't exactly see what happened, but I walked in and the two boys were fighting with each other and there was talk of of Manny sticking his finger up my cat's butt <laughs> and um, but I didn't see it and it just felt awkward kind of fitting it into the story. It's hard to process reactions to people hearing the story. Um, I know Cindy, we talked and then Kevin, we emailed about, I knew that people were not going to like me, <laughs> that this is going to be really hard and I was going to be judged very harshly, but it's still really painful to see those reactions. So I did start to doubt if I told the story correctly. I, I did read that someone commented something about that I tried to make myself be the victim and that was never my intention. Um, I live with the fact every day that these two boys thought they were going to be adopted by us and then they weren't. You know, I, I did that. I didn't say that in the story. I think there was a version that we said that, but I we didn't say that because ultimately I don't really know how they're feeling. So this is my story. I can't project their feelings. I know that I have incredible guilt and shame and grief and regret and self-hatred. I tried to portray all that with the pendulum analogy at the end. And that really is how I think of my grief process. But at the same time, I still need to live and I still need to heal myself. And at the end of the day, I have to know that none of my actions were intentional. I didn't do this to hurt anybody. So I hope that, I hope that deep down people can hear that. I think that if anyone is thinking of adopting, please don't be deterred by listening to my story. 
There are so many children who need families. I just suggest ask questions during your matching meeting and find the right support networks. But please, please do not take this story as a deterrent. We need families for children. This is Risk. This is Danica Smith behind me now. And we just heard from Laura Ford, a story edited by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Like I said, Laura was a Risk listener who reached out and pitched us. There's a submissions page at risk-show.com slash submissions with lots of helpful tips on how to pitch us, including video and audio, lots of helpful stuff there. So check us out at risk-show.com slash submissions. And before that, a little interstitial that was also sent in by a risk listener, Todd Easton sent in uh, that little uh, ditty based on Henry McMillan's story called The Cinch and the Swell. If you have any interest in creating some of those audio interstitials for us, those sound collages, just email me at kevin at risk-show.com. Folks, if you like good old-fashioned true crime mysteries, if you like stories where you feel like you're a detective finding clues, June's Journey is the name of this new game that you can play on your iPhone or your Android. You are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder. It's this well-to-do family in the 1920s living in a great Gatsby-like mansion. Each scene uncovers new aspects of the story. Some parts are in New York. Some parts are in Paris. There's all kinds of objects you're finding and trying to assess whether they're meaningful or not. You collect information, filling out your own photo album, and you're keeping track of all the characters. There's romance. There's scandalous family secrets. It feels like a really fun play or movie. And I've only made it through like five scenes, but I am told you could crack the case. 
All you need is an internet connection and downloading on iOS or Android. So discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Our final story on this week's episode is an extraordinary one by an extraordinary storyteller. It was such an honor to have Sheila Arnold on the show. Sheila has done remarkable work at the National Storytelling Festival and the Timpanagos Storytelling Festival. You can find Sheila at MsSheila.org. That's MsSheila.org. And here she is now for the story we call Taming the Fire. My story takes place when I was in that nostalgic time. I was back in high school. So this is the 19, uh, 1979 is when I started high school. And back in 1979, I was just learning about being black. But I got to tell you, just a little bit before that, as I was growing up in school, I learned about three black people. Now, if you talk to many black people that are my age, matter of fact, if you talk to anybody my age, basically you learned about three black people in school. One of them would be, of course, Harriet Tubman. Everybody knew Harriet. All right. Second, it would be Martin Luther King. Everybody knew Martin. Then you had a choice, but it's a limited choice. So you either learned about Rosa Parks, Sojourner Truth, or Frederick Douglass. Okay. All right. I'm sorry. George Washington Carver. All right. One of those was going to be who you learned about. There's no doubt about it. And I had learned about Frederick Douglass and uh, Harriet Tubman and Martin Luther King Jr. So that's all the history that I really had. I grew up with my father and mother, my father being in the military, we traveling a lot. So we had lots of people around us of all kinds. And when we were at home in the States, I would be at a church that was my, my mother's church. And so I was had a history that came to me through literature, through Paul Lawrence Dunbar, through the Negro spirituals we had. But I really didn't know a lot until 1979 when I became black. And I decided to take my blackness in hand, indeed. And I was going to learn. So I was going to the library and I found these black poets. I found Nikki Giovanni. Oh, I found Maya Angelou writing the I Know Why the Cage Bird Sings. I found these amazing things. I found James Baldwin. 
Now, I had just had this little bit of a fire getting on, you know, I'm becoming a black woman and stuff. And I found James Baldwin and I found his book. It's called Just Above My Head. It was in our library where I was a library assistant at high school. I saw it and it wasn't even on the shelf yet. So I went over to pick it up and the library said, "Uh uh-uh, no, 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 no. That is not for young people. Well, I was furious. She banned a book from me. I went home to my mother. I told her they were banning black books. And so my mother went out and got this book and she let me read it. It really is inappropriate for high schoolers to read. And, um, <laughs> but it was amazing because it talked about being a young preacher. It talked about, it talked about homosexuality, which at that time I didn't talk about, didn't know anything else about. So it had things that for me were just like very different than where I was growing up at. But I loved James Baldwin and the way he wrote. So the fire was growing. Well, one day, as I was learning all kinds of new things, and I began to get bored, as I often do. And and getting bored, that meant I was looking for a new book. And so I went to my uh, an uncle that lived across the street from us, went in their house, and I found this book called The Black Book. And I picked it up, and I started looking through it, and, well... It's, it's really a pictorial book, and it has primary source documents. It has all kinds of pictures. It has articles. It has advertisements. It, it was partly written by Toni Morrison, was one of the editors for it. So it's just really this really great book. And I was reading it and, and just fascinated. It also had really hurtful things. It had pictures of black bodies being burned and hanged. But these were things at least I'd heard about. So it really just had a little more fire, but it didn't change anything until I got to the middle of the book. Now, I have to tell you, in the middle of this book, when I got there, there was something I had never seen before. There were patents. Patents, you know, those things that people make and they get a something that says they were the ones that made it. In the middle of this book, there were patents. There were patents for a fountain pen, for a clothes dryer, for a pencil sharpener, for egg beater, basic things that everybody used. And they were in the middle of this book. And I was furious. And that fire that had been just this little fire being tended really well got real big. I got angry. I was furious. You see, I had learned enough in school to know that the way that they taught us history, if you made a contribution to our country, then your people deserve to be acknowledged. And the only people acknowledged at ever giving anything to our country had been white. There were no blacks that were taught this. And here I was seeing a book. I was angry. I was the epitome of the mad black girl, which will later become the angry black woman, okay? But I was furious. My school had 13 black people in it. 13! And it was a very white, there were more others than there were us. So when I came to school with attitude all in my face and ready, people stayed out of my way. I couldn't wait to get to see Mrs. Elliott. Mrs. Elliott was my history teacher. I loved Mrs. Elliott. But at that moment, she was just another white teacher teaching me and not teaching me the truth. I brought the book back in with me. I went into the class. When we got to her class, we were, you know, changing classes and stuff. Everybody just kind of walking along. I walk in the book. I slam the book on her desk. And I mean slam. I slammed the book on her desk and said, 
Why aren't you teaching us this? Now, the reality is, had I thought about it for a moment, I would have known I was going to be sent to the principal's office. I was completely disrespectful at every part of the way. But at that moment, I didn't care. All I saw was fire. All I felt was pain. All I felt was unseen and ashamed that no one had told me. So I said it again. Why aren't you teaching us this? She looked up at me. She was kind of a shorter woman and she was sitting down. The whole classroom had stopped. I was the only black kid in this class. And she said, do you really want to learn it? Yes. All right. And she changed our class. From that moment, Miss Elliot changed the syllabus. She began to teach us about black history. She taught us about the Middle Passage. Middle Passage, never heard about it. She taught us about the first blacks coming over. Suddenly I had names out the wazoo. I had people I had never heard of before. I heard about people that had done incredible things in history in the military. She invited my mother to come in and speak about being alive during segregation. And my friends, they were learning too, because you see, they had learned nothing more than I had. And when my mother came in to speak about being alive in segregation, they were stunned because they knew my mom. They knew my mom as my mom, not as a a black person that had lived through this. And for me, I, I, I got to hear more of the story about my mom and how my grandfather, her father, and how my uncle had both been a part of the planning committee for the March on Washington. I was learning amazing things. And my whole class was, suddenly we were at a completely different place. Now, Mrs. Elliott changed our class of history. She didn't change everybody's class of history. She didn't know quite what was going to happen. Later on, I found out that the reason she was able to stop and teach this, (laughs) this teacher in the summers had been taking African-American studies classes. But this white teacher coming to a school that had 13 black children and never more than one in a class at a time had no idea how to teach that. And now she had the chance and she was ready. (laughs) Our class became so close. We became activists. One of the things that we did is I skipped school. Now, I will tell you, I don't know how I got away with skipping school, but I never got punished for that moment. But I skipped school and me and and a bunch of my friends from that class, we got on the subway in Northern Virginia and we took it up to D.C. to go to the rally. See, it was before Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday was a holiday and we were going to be at the rally That was going to be one of the many rallies to ask for it to be a holiday. And we got on that subway and we were talking to another. Then we got off the subway and suddenly I was the most important person in that group because those white people had never seen that many black people ever at one time. And suddenly we're walking up and I was like, wow, my people. And we were listening to speeches and, and my friends were with me and we had learned something together. And then, then it happened, then it happened. 
Stevie Wonder walked out. <laughs> yes. Happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to ya. But I just, we all danced and laughed and, and we learned and we listened. And we were together for that. And we, we learned to be activists and we started wanting to do things for World Wildlife Fund and for cerebral palsy and, and multiple sclerosis because of a teacher who realized that a student hadn't been seen or heard. I'd had this little bitty fire that had started to grow. And because of a huge log, it became so big it was almost as if it was about to explode. But with the heart of a teacher who was willing to look and see and listen, she contained that fire, not so it would go out, but so it would burn and it would go forth and it would help others. Thank you, Ms. Elliott. Thank you. Well, it didn't make much sense That should be a login Anyone that took a fence At a video celebration On the end of my mind I thought that ought to be a crime That was a genocide To show just how much we love you And I'm sure you agree I can live more perfectly For the half of one party On the day you came to me is all for this week's episode folks this is stevie wonder behind me now and we just heard from sheila arnold who you can find online at missheila.org that's msheila.org don't forget the next risk live stream is september 26 that's saturday at 10 p.m eastern we're doing fewer of these now so you have to make a point of getting your ticket and being there september 26 at 10 p.m eastern you get your tickets at risk-show.com slash tour folks i don't know if you understand just how important it is that if you love what we do here at risk we rely very very heavily especially this year in order to keep afloat we really do rely on the financial support of our listeners and there are so many reasons to become a member over at patreon.com risk This week, we are uploading the most extraordinary story, a story by Don Collymore. It's epic. 
And we always upload new bonus stories or interviews with storytellers or staff members or my own personal journal check-ins. There's just so much wonderful extra content over there at Patreon. Also, there are ad-free versions of each episode as it goes up in case you're averse to the ads in the show. And there are different perks and prizes depending on how much you're giving. If you give $25 or more per month, we do a little shout out. And this week, it is Kent Whipple, who is a friend of the show. He's been on the show twice and done amazingly both times. And Rebecca Wenzel. Thank you so much to both of you. And yes... If you are hearing this now, don't forget to go to patreon.com slash risk and become a member or up your donation if you're already over there. And if you want to make a one-time donation, that's at paypal.me slash risk show. Have you noticed the episode notes for this episode you're currently listening to in your podcast player? There's a big list of, you know, links to click on to get to us. How you can get your tickets for the shows at risk-show.com slash tour. How you can get the Risk Book at theriskbook.com. How you can take our classes at thestorystudio.org. Don't forget you can hire me to make a personalized video for you at cameo.com slash thekevinallison. You can also hire me as your own personal coach at kevinallison.com. And you can start texting with me, receiving news of the day, behind the scenes stuff happening with the show, poll questions, all that kind of stuff. If you go to joinsubtext.com slash risk show, I'll text you back. You'll be in conversation with me. It's really fun. And everything else you might want to know about us is at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday to ya. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to ya. Happy Kevin is not dancing. I just want to let y'all know. I'm looking at Kevin. Kevin is not dancing. He's showing all of his white stuff right now. I'm just I'm just gonna say, I just gotta let it out, you know. Just no dancing whatsoever. <laughs>